Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner and today my guest is Dr. Ruben Nyman and we're going to be talking about the epidemic of dream deprivation. Dr. Nyman is a psychologist, sleep and dream specialist, and clinical assistant professor of medicine at the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine. Dr. Nyman is a leader in the development of integrative approaches to sleep and dream disorders, integrating conventional sleep science with body, mind, and depth psychological and transpersonal perspectives. Dr. Nyman founded and directed sleep programs at Canyon Ranch and Miraval Health Resorts. He's also the founder and director of New Moon Sleep, an organization that offers a broad range of sleep and dream related services, trainings, and consultations internationally. Dr. Nyman has consulted with a broad range of major health and sleep product companies and has presented at venues ranging from the New York Academy of Sciences to Simbanda Yoga Centers. He currently maintains a global telehealth practice and has worked with a diverse clientele, including Fortune 500 CEOs, professional athletes, entertainers, and statesmen. Dr. Nyman is the author of several groundbreaking works on sleep, including Healing Night, Healthy Sleep with Andrew Weil, The Yoga of Sleep, and Hush, a book of bedtime contemplations, as well as various professional articles and book chapters. His work has been featured in numerous magazines and newspapers, and he has blogged extensively about sleep and dreams for the HuffPost. Please check out his website, drnyman.com. I hope you enjoy this inspirational podcast about sleep with Dr. Nyman. Welcome, Dr. Nyman. It's really an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Christina. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, well, I was so interested and intrigued in your work through what you talk about and what I could read online about your thought of that we really are in this dream deprivation state in American culture and really in in the societal culture right now. And that just struck a chord to me and it resonated Mm -hmm. with me so strongly. And I see a lot of patients who struggle with chronic illnesses. And one of the symptoms, of course, are insomnia and all sorts of sleep disorders that we have to work through. But uh, there's a loss of dream. They can't remember their dreams. They're very disconnected from their dreams. And, you know, as we work to heal their body and they're sleeping more, the dreams come back and there's messages off in those dreams. And so that just, you know, I I know we talk about sleep as a culture and we need to get good sleep, but the way you um, phrase the dream deprivation really struck a chord and wanted me to reach out and interview you. So before we dive into all of that, I know that you have a really amazing career that has led you to research sleep and dreaming. So can you just share with the audience who might be new to your work, how you got intrigued and interested to make this your life's passion? As is the case for many of us in terms of passion, there there are lots of factors over many, many years, beginning in my childhood and into my adulthood that that shaped this this interest in sleep and dreams. Uh, And I should say, on the the other hand, I don't know why everybody isn't as interested in sleep and dreams, (laughs) because it, it is really, as we talk about it, it encompasses life in such a profound, comprehensive way. To begin with, my parents were Eastern European. And uh, my mother in particular brought some old world ways with her. Both of my parents were Holocaust survivors. It was interesting over the years, they, they never sat me down and talked about how important sleep was, but they demonstrated that. My father, who was an exceptionally patient man, would really begin to lose his patience if you disturbed somebody who was sleeping. So there were these unspoken messages. I'd written about this. My mother from the time I was, I don't know, four, five, six years old, she played this game with me, the same game over and over again. She'd ask me a question. I knew what she was looking for, but she'd say, what's the best thing in the world? And, you know, I was a kid. Of course, it was toys or television. I, she'd say, no, no, or ice cream, no. And then she would give me the answer she was looking for, and she would say, sleep. 
sleep is the best thing in the world. And I'd argue with her because, you know, you couldn't eat ice cream or watch TV or play. Or, but years later, as I came to understand her history and the Holocaust, it made so much sense to me that sleep was this profound respite and not just sleep, but sleeping and dreaming. And she had tapped into this dream world that was important to her. She talked about dreams as if they were something from another sphere, you know, a profound message. So I, I know that kept both of my parents, it contributed, I should say, to their survival. The ability to be able to rest in the face of that kind of horror, that kind of tragedy, it's a profound act of faith. And the other thing that baffled me as I got older and I was in grad school, started studying, you know, the, in psychology, uh, I was interested in trauma. I realized that um, there was something wrong with my parents because they didn't have nighttime symptoms of PTSD. I mean, they had, they were impacted by this for sure, but they both slept really well. And it made no sense to me because one of the classic symptoms of PTSD is, is you know, chronic insomnia, nightmares. That wasn't the case. So that got me really interested in how powerful sleep is as medicine. I really do believe it was a profound made a profound contribution to their survival. And then the last thing I'll mention is, is by the time I turned um, in my teen years, uh, there, there was this surge of interest in psychedelics, which we can now talk about openly, and we couldn't for a long time. I actually had contact with Timothy Leary um, after he was kicked out of Harvard. Some really interesting stories behind that. And, and uh, my friends and I, we, we began experimenting. We were kids. I mean, I was a teenager. But we also had, uh, we had this really naive, this innocent, naive sense that there was something about expanding consciousness that was really important in life, that, that we were all caught in these boxes and didn't recognize the, the limitations of what we were looking at. My primary interest really is consciousness. And, you know, consciousness includes three things, basically. It includes waking, but as much it includes sleep and dreams. And so... Um, a, a lot of maybe we can what we can touch on is is um, this notion of what I call the United States of consciousness. So many of us are, are practicing various forms of yoga, and we're familiar with the classic yogic chant Om. I had a great conversation with a Hindu scholar about this some time ago. We we typically write Om O M, but he said no no no, it's A U M because it's Aum. It's actually three sounds. A U M. A is waking. U is sleeping, M is dreaming. So th this notion of whole consciousness, it, it's hummed in that sound, it's integrated. And, and I think because we are so poorly connected with our sleep and our dreams, it, it, it really keeps us from being whole people. Mm -hmm. That I had never heard of that um, before. And what a wonderful validation, right, of your, you know, experience and your, your research to even have that, you know, that yogic mantra, you know, presented in that way. And as you talk, I, um, I think about how compartmentalized we are, you know, in American culture and how we are this fast-paced culture that tries to fit everything in in the day. And often, you know, for a time, I mean, there's a lot of people like yourself who are bringing sleep back in vogue and wanting that like sleep actually is profoundly therapeutic and helpful. And it's not a cross to bear to how little sleep you get, right? Mm -hmm. I used to be a badge of honor though. I can, you know, have four hours of sleep and still get through my day. And, you know, from my perspective, of course, I think of all the physiological effects that sleep have. And so we're, you know, we're really, you know, trying to pack everything in in a day. 
And then many of us, because of that experience of, you know, really, and again, I'm making broad strokes, but again, this is what I I see in my office is that, Mm. you know, because people are in this really sympathetic state during the day, they often have a hard time or issues with their sleep. And then we don't even talk about the dreaming aspect. I think when we're trying to heal sleep a lot, because um, a lot of the, you know, I'm a naturopath, so I'm going to use different agents, but a lot of the traditional sleeping medications actually they can help people to get unconscious into sleep, but they can affect those different stages of sleep, like the deep sleep and the REM sleep. And so that can also impact, you know, where we dream and where we can, you know, get the wholeness. And so I just, I'm just laying out the problem, right. You know, even more and I'm, you know, reiterating it, what you just shared. And so we don't really even still understand, you know, sleep. I mean, and you're in research, you're in, you know, a very, you know, vibrant, you know, around a lot of colleagues with, you know, Dr. Wiles' work and people who are like looking at all these questions. But are you satisfied about what we know about sleep today, um, where the research lies? No. <laughs> in some ways, I'm satisfied with what we know, but we don't acknowledge some of the truths that we have. So you were touching on on um, what we call hyper arousal, you know, this fast paced life. You know, the faster somebody goes, the more their visual, their perceptual set is constricted. We we close down when we go really fast, and and we are going really fast. And what's happened is that we overvalue waking. So it's something I call wake centrism. It's parallel to to ethnocentrism. We used to go into other cultures and think, my God, they're so weird. You know, their language doesn't sound a little like ours and they do strange things with pottery. But what we don't recognize is that that we don't recognize. Um, we, we think waking is life. It's wake centrism. And we look at sleeping and dreaming as being secondary and subservient. The belief is the only reason we sleep and dream is to make us better at waking. And that's how we approach those. What happens is we fail to recognize that sleeping and dreaming actually are much more than servants of waking life. They're profound states of consciousness. The common beliefs about sleep, both in sleep medicine and in our culture, the definition of sleep uh, is negative. And, and what I mean by that, it's not that it's bad, but we define sleep in terms of what it's not. And we do this with health, right? Most people think, well, what's health? Well, it's not disease, right? It's not sick. It's not ill. That sounds compelling, but it's bull. You know, it doesn't tell you what it is. We do that with sleep. If you ask both sleep specialists or ask the person on the street, what is sleep? Well, it's not waking. It's not awareness. It's not consciousness. The technical term in sleep medicine for true sleep, for stage sleep is non-REM. What is it? It's not dreaming. So we fool ourselves into thinking that we know what it is. We also, um, I don't know if you remember Gregory Bateson, a, a great anthropologist and systems thinker. So he was famous for saying, you know, the name is not the thing. The map is not the territory. And we confuse the name and the map. In fact, we confuse the number with the thing. What, what is sleep? You know, we look at patterns of neural patterns that are firing, or we look at EEG readouts, we look at numbers, and we think the way that we map sleep is sleep. Well, the brain does all kinds of interesting and important things when we sleep, as does the body. But the brain doesn't sleep. We do. It's a personal subjective experience. And this is where sleep medicine, and I think a lot of medicine in general, really falls on its face because there's a profound disregard of personal experience, of subjectivity. And, and again, this is not in lieu of, it's not about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but sleep is a deeply personal experience. The presumption forever in sleep medicine has been, well, one of the defining factors of sleep is it's unconscious. 
that, you know, and Will Dement, the great granddaddy of sleep research at Stanford, said, you know, um, by definition, you can't be aware of non-REM, of non-dreaming sleep. It's just not true. We can be aware of sleep and many of us become aware of sleep and we need to learn that it's okay to be aware of sleep. Think back to a college kid who was out till 3 a.m. on Saturday night and you're trying to wake him up in the morning. He goes, leave me alone. I'm sleeping. He is. He's sleeping. Many of us have had the experience uh, often, more often around naps where we're sleeping and actually know we're sleeping. And, and this is something that yoga has reminded us about, yoga nidra in particular, which is sleep yoga. And we, we have data now. You can actually, we have people who can go into delta sleep and open their eyes. They can be awake and asleep at the same time. Why is that important? When we think of sleep as unconscious, we dismiss it. It's just like what the body and the brain does. It doesn't matter. But but sleep actually is a profound state of what I would consider spiritual consciousness. Sleep is a kind of, it's a profound state of serenity, of stillness. And learning to cultivate awareness of sleep is, is a really great thing to do. But number one, learning not to be afraid of awareness during sleep. So here's a scenario. Somebody, and this is really common, somebody is sleeping and they start to wake up in the middle of the night and the back of their mind, the first thing that goes on is, oh crap, I have insomnia. The belief that any kind of awareness in the middle of sleep is pathological is a real mistake. You know, so the, what do they do? Then they end up fighting it. They, they get more and more awake. You know, they, they toss, they turn, they think about this. They don't think about that. And they end up taking a sleeping pill. So we need to get that there's a continuity, a connectedness between waking and sleeping. And we'll talk, maybe talk more about that because that's where dreaming comes in. But we need to know that, that sleep is accessible, that we can feel it. In fact, I believe that Sleep is the foundation of consciousness. And it's not just my belief, but we see it in, in various other sacred traditions. If we're sitting in, in, in a crowded, noisy room and people are chatting, and you ask yourself the question, where's the silence in that room? There's all this noise going on. Well, you never have to go to the silence. You simply have to subtract the noise. The silence is everywhere. It's behind. It's the, it's the default. Sleep is the default in consciousness. There is a part of us, the mind, the psyche, the spirit, the brain, whatever. There's part of us that is always already asleep, always inside of us. And so uh, we never really have to go to sleep. We have to let go of our crazy attachment to waking. Wow, that I, I've never. I mean, I've, I've read some of your work, of course, so I've heard you speak of this. But the, the way that you shared it just opened my mind to so many things to think about, especially this default mode, right? And that you know, not maybe to get too esoteric too quickly, but you know, I'm, I'm I love to study like the world of the quantum and the field and you know the unified whatever that is, right? And so when you talk about that. I almost kind of envision it's our it's our opportunity to really connect with something greater than ourselves, right? Yes, yes. And the larger, whatever that is to anyone who's listening, right? And so we can't really disconnect from spiritual, our spiritual nature when we talk about sleep is what obviously you can't. <laughs> terms with, you know? So, yeah. so with that being said, 
we can study all this physical stuff, right? That you mentioned, we, we call these different stages of sleep and we have non-REM and we have REM and we have, you know, different measurements of the brain and then, you know, also different measurements of the body when we go through different states of sleep. What objective kind of information have you gleaned over your, your work to connect us with, you know, measuring, if you will, or talking or touching the spiritual part of sleep? Well, the measurements are interesting and important in certain ways, and they're overdone. So most obviously, um, measuring sleep is critical if we're dealing with sleep apnea. It's a complex area, and, and it's probably where sleep medicine has to date made its greatest contribution because you know, people who show up with severe sleep apnea you know, are at risk for, for dying, for severe cardiovascular disease, uh, all, all kinds of things. And so the measurements at that time when we're looking at oxygen desaturation and when and when it occurs and body position and all kinds of things, they're critical. But at that point, we're dealing with real serious illness. Uh, James Nestor, I don't know if you know, is where he, the, he's written the book on breathing and, and opened, really opened some interesting channels of thought about sleep apnea that I th- this is a whole other discussion. But in terms of insomnia, in terms of the most common sleep disorders, trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, the numbers don't do us much good, frankly. And what's gone on today, there is now a new, relatively new billion dollar industry in terms of, of measurement, you know, self-measurement and people are buying. I'm not knocking this stuff, but, uh, you know, a lot of my new patients come in with a ream of data and I say, you know, how's your sleep? And they start turning pages, you know, and it's like, I want to know how it feels to them, but they've got data and they downloaded data. And what happens then is uh, there's, a, there's, there's an erosion of what we call self-efficacy. So a s- belief in oneself, right? I mean, it, it really, it's, it's a scientific synonym for faith in oneself, belief in one's ability to heal, the belief, trust in the brain, the body, the mind, the spirit. People lose a sense of, they, they lose touch with waking up in the morning and seeing how they feel. Instead, they consult their data. You know, I had such and such a percent of REM and deep sleep last night. It's a little bit like when you ask somebody if they're hungry, they look at their watch to see if it's noon, you know, rather than check with your belly, you know, check with your tummy. So there, there's a limit to that kind of assessment. And, and really what it does is it reinforces the belief that it's all about numbers. And in the years and years I've traveled around the globe talking about sleep, the, the most common question I get asked over and over and over is how many hours should I sleep? How many hours should I, it's like, it's like somebody saying, how, how many calories should I eat? You know, mm-hmm. well, I don't know, you know, you know, how old are you? How healthy are you? Are you exercising? Are you pregnant? You know, it, it, the answer is it depends. So it's a misleading question. It's misleading to look at the numbers. We want to look at the feeling of it. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that draws us back into having a personal relationship with sleep, which I think is really critical. And, and going back to this idea, just considering that sleep is inside of me. You know, as people think, I have to go to sleep. And insomniacs start to get nervous, you know, around dinner time. You know, it's like, oh my God, I'm not going to sleep tonight. I got an important meeting tomorrow. As if they have to find sleep, you know, it's hidden somewhere and they have to cognitively figure out this code or decipher something. And it's not, I mean, the irony is it's given to everybody. You know, people in, in concentration camps slept. I mean, not everybody, but some of them did. So, if there's a secret, an open secret to getting to sleep, it's simply the willingness to surrender waking, to recognize that waking is not all there is. When, if I believe that's all there is, then I'm, I need to get to sleep. 
I'm stuck trying to leverage waking for me to get to sleep. So I have to stay awake to get to sleep. Probably before your time, but I, I grew up with uh, the Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, there's a great scene that they actually played over and over again. You know, the three of them are sleeping. You know, there's like these three big guys sharing a twin bed, you know, and they're fighting. Anyhow, uh, Mo, Mo is bothering Larry. And and um, I don't know, he's, he's bothering Curly. Exactly. I guess it changes, you know, you know, get to sleep and Curly starts to snore. And then he turns to Larry. Larry's already asleep and Mo does something interesting. He shakes Larry and he says, hey, you wake up and go to sleep. <laughs> and it's an interesting notion because we can't go to sleep unless we're awake. And we believe this in our world. And people do that when they get a little bit of wakefulness in the middle of the night or at the beginning of the night when they're falling asleep, when they're in the waters asleep already, it's like they feel like they have to swim to the shore to jump over, get out of the water to jump in. When we wake up, we're part asleep, you know, half asleep, three fourths asleep. The challenge is to surrender, to, to let go, to really let go. The part of me that I call I, the part of you that you call I, the part of us that we call I can't sleep. It's the waking self. There's more to me. There's this really sort of weird, amorphous, spiritual, hard to define, psychedelic, dreamy. There's another part of us that is already asleep or at least next door to sleep. I have to stop trying. Now, having said that, and and you see this all the time, I'm sure in your practice, people come in after years and years and years of flying really high, you know, um, just pushing, pushing their energy, whether it's through, through um, adrenaline or caffeine or a lot of stimulation or, you know, overexposure to electronic stuff, all kinds of stuff. People get so hyped and the, the body then is sort of buzzing. And, and it does take, sometimes it takes some effort to get the body to quiet down after long, long periods of stimulation. Uh, you can't quite surrender when you're, you know, a mile high, you know, you want to get closer to the ground before you, before you land. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really beautifully put again. And, you know, the sleep is a surrender, right? And I don't have an issue sleeping. I love sleeping. I sleep well, but you know, I have- but What you just said is important, you know, yeah. uh, let me just interject quickly. Yeah. Uh, often I'll get a line of people wanting to talk to me after I speak. And, and there, there's usually two or three people who keep dropping to the back of the line. They want to be the last one to talk. Sure. And when, when they come up, almost always they'll, they'll whisper to make sure there's no insomniac around. They'll say- <laughs> I love sleep. I really love sleep. They don't want to embarrass anybody, but they do. Yeah, yeah. And it's true. It's yeah. true. When you, you're a good sleeper, you will love sleep. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, um, my daughter's three. So I understand, you know, when she was little, what it's like to go without and, you know, that interrupted sleep. And I know how physically you can feel. So I, I have had my moment, but yeah, I, I do. Um, I feel very blessed that I have good sleep. And, but I have this, like I go to acupuncture once a week. And when I'm in acupuncture, it's this experience that I feel like that I get really rested and I'm in that space between I'm not asleep, but I'm not awake. Mm-hmm. I'm surrendering into whatever we all believe we're surrendering. What, what, what do you? What, what might you call that space? What does it feel like? You know, it's almost it's like this the void. You know, this um, this void or this kind of like you know we all identify that we're these individuals, right? But it's mm-hmm. this space that 
we're not, if that makes sense. So it, it our, is, our sense of self begins to dissolve around the edges. Yeah. There's not the eye, not this hard eye. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that can be scary for people. Right? Thank you. Yeah. So in Greek mythology, the god of sleep was hypnos. And I, I know for sure he's offended that, that we've named hypnotics after him. <laughs> but the god of sleep was hypnos. He's a really interesting character. His brother was Thanatos, the god of death. So there's this interesting kinship. And we see this in a lot of traditions. There's this connection between sleeping and dying. Falling asleep is a kind of death. If we think waking is life, we're letting go of waking. We're practicing a kind of practice of dying. Yeah, no, I am so glad you articulated that because that, that's what I, as you're talking and in my experience, you know, there's this awareness of death every time I go to that space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And as a culture, you know, we're afraid to die. I mean, it's hard probably to tell somebody who can't sleep just, hey, you're afraid of death, right? You know, like that, that's maybe a, a too big of a leap for yeah. certain people. But I, I think there's a theme there, maybe. Um, Definitely. You know, yeah. the fear of death. I, I in my first uh, 10 years or so in practice, I, I, I did a lot of focus on dreaming, but most of my work was done with, with dying patients and grieving patients. I was, I worked uh, for San Diego Hospice. And, um, we, we learned a long time ago that the fear of dying is a fear of living. Mm. If people are afraid because they haven't fully lived. Now, the space you were describing a few minutes ago, I would call a dreamy space because mm. you, you're lifting up out of the, the constrictions of ordinary waking. Now, I don't mean to knock waking. I kind of like it. I mean, it's, <laughs> but but there, there are these edges around it and you begin, it gets permeable. And, and this is true when we're fo- first falling asleep, we go through what's called a hypnagogic process. Mm. It's a, a fancy term for there's a dissolution of waking. And, and uh, so like the rider gets off the horse and the horse just trots off. But we get these images, these kaleidoscopic images that come and go. So here's something else that we miss in in sleep medicine, the transition, the natural transition from waking to sleep requires going over the bridge of dreams. We have to go through dreaming and it might just be for a few seconds. It might be for a minute or two. And and you're right. You know, people get, people actually get afraid of that. Those experiences, are, they're psychedelic to, for lack of a better term. These weird things are happening because the, the waking controlling mind is no longer operating uh, our, our consciousness. And, and we're, we're kind of flooded at that point with this expanded consciousness. So we have to be willing to trust the dream in, in this specific case that, that, that when we, we, we go into the waters of sleep, we're going to, going to get hit by dreaming. And then also coming out of sleep, most of what we consider sleep loss is, is dream loss, which I find really interesting. And so I have tangled with sleep medicine. Um, I just wrote an article. It's, it's in a book that just came out called integrative sleep medicine. I wrote an article on dream medicine, but also an article called um, The Future of Sleep and Dream Medicine. And and my belief, well, let me go back a step. When you look at Western medicine, conventional Western medicine, we are the only whole medical system on earth ever that doesn't pay significant attention to dreaming. If you look at traditional Chinese medicine, and you look at Ayurvedic medicine, homeopathic medicine, all these alternatives around the world, they all really value dreaming. In fact, Western medicine grew out of a, a Greek a, a tradition, Asclepian tradition, and Asclepian temples or the, these healing centers were quite integrative. They would do nutrition and massage and bathing, but their primary intervention was dream work. So the roots of Western medicine come out of this regard for dreaming, but 
in the Western world, there's no regard. And I think it's because we're afraid of that expanded consciousness because it takes us out of this wake centrism. So we have to really restore dreaming. And you and I talked a little bit about this. We are in the midst of a, an epidemic, a silent epidemic of dream loss. As I said a minute ago, that people think they're losing sleep and they're actually most sleep loss is happening in the middle of the night when people start to enter REM sleep. They're losing dreams. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and yeah, let's let's go to that. Let's go to the dream world. So you mentioned how there's this entry into sleep where we are slightly dreaming. And then throughout my study, and I know it's evolving, that most of the dream state happens when we're in this stage of sleep called REM rapid movement there could be maybe some dreaming in other stages but that's really the focus and so why are we in this REM and dream deprivation as a culture it's a great question you know so we we pan back at this point one one of the sort of obvious critical and stated but disregarded factors and 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 lack of sleep health is we're disconnected from the world you know we live with the world and, and most humans don't like to acknowledge that, you know, we think we live on top of it and we're, we're kind of running the show, but you know, there, the, there's, there's an energy in life. I mean, the obvious one is this circadian rhythm of night and day. It's profound. Um, you know, it, it has a counterpart inside of us. You know, there's this movement of activity and rest. There are other kinds of rhythms or brack, ultradian brack cycles, these 90 minute cycles that go through the day. There's a pulsation, uh, there's an oscillation of, of dominating consciousness from left and right hemisphere. Ninety-minute cycles through the day, they become sleep cycles at night, and it, it's all—it's a dance with the world around us. But we've disconnected. We've stopped listening to that music, you know. And so that's also the dream. Uh, the, the, the dream connects us with something outside of our waking, limited waking self, and that's scary. Expanding, expanding my sense of myself means who I believe I am in one respect dies, you know, it's, it's just not the same. I mean, it, it gets, it gets recontextualized. So dreams, and we all know this at some level, dreams can be very powerful, even if we try to dismiss them, even if it's, oh, you know, it was just a dream, you know, sometimes you wake up from what we consider a big dream by definition is a big dream. A big dream is a dream you'll never forget. And we all have them, you know, some of us from childhood. It says something we, we know it's not real, right? And that's what we've been taught. But it, it touches our hearts and our minds. It might scare us. It might confuse us. So that there, there is an intelligence, I would say, in the dreamer. It, our unconscious is, is delivering this or the collective unconscious. And so to be willing to dream is to be willing to be in a much deeper conversation with ourselves and with the world. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I loved how you, you know, just explored and explained all of these natural rhythms and cycles within our life and how we're highly interconnected to the planet and how these rhythms occur, you know, during the sleep, uh, sleep um, time. And, you know, obviously dreams are an opportunity to, um, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to do so much in the dream, dream state. I guess what I'm, I'm hearing like some of my patients say, or, you know, maybe somebody who's listening. So there are those profound dreams, right? There are those dreams that are wildly random or wildly disturbing, <laughs> Or wildly confusing. And so how do we, so I'm curious about, you know, how you explain that and how you make sense of that. And then 
I'm, I'm sure there's ways for us to optimize and prepare the state of consciousness that we get the most connection and the most information from the state as well. So maybe exploring those pieces. There's a lot of questions in what you're saying. It was a whole question of dream interpretation. But, yeah. You know, um, dreaming is a dialogue. If we're willing to enter, it's a conversation. So, so much of what goes on is so much in our attitude to dreaming today, is, I think, is really mistaking. We try to dominate the dream. There are lots of people doing dream hacking, which really bothers me. <laughs> you know, the dream in one respect is, is a natural resource. It's a natural spiritual resource. And, you know, the way we've treated natural resources literally in our world today is, you know, we've ju just strip mined and we've dug and we've damned. And, you know, it's, it's as if the planet uh, has no value, has no life. We just mine this stuff. And people look at dreams like that. Like, I'm going to tap into my dreams. I'm going to use my dreams. It's transactional. Not that that can't happen in some ways, but we, I think we have to respect that the dream, the dreaming part of us, the, the dream is alive. It has an intelligence. It speaks a language. There are things that the dream needs to say that can't be said in words, even though there may be dialogue in a dream. So the dream is speaking this language to us. Our challenge is to be open to having a conversation with it, uh, even when it's scary. You know, we, we do this dream dialogic work. We, we speak to the parts. We have really interesting data, too, just to, to give an example. When people are coming in with severe nightmares, PTSD nightmares, we, we teach them over time to actually talk to the scary thing. And maybe it's a, it's, a, it's a big, giant green monster that wants to eat them and you know, really frightening. The beauty in this is more often than not, when you, 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 we teach lucidity, you learn and you turn, you turn to the dream, you turn to the monster and say, hey, who are you? What do you want? Do you, do you, have, do you have something to say to me? Have, the monster almost instantly transforms sometimes into somebody you know, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes into a bunny rabbit. It, it's just profound. It, so the, the the form, the fearful form comes from our fear being projected, but then we can open a dialogue. It's what we call shadow work. We, we, we get diamonds from coal. We, we get something precious from something black, dirty, and buried. So our willingness to have a relationship with the dream is our willingness to have a relationship with the unconscious. You know, in, in biblical stories, Jacob's Ladder um, is one of the best known biblical stories, but it, it's a story about the dream, the dream as a ladder, as a connection between this world and the other world, between consciousness and unconsciousness, between earth and heaven, however you want to see it. I have an image of Jacob's ladder right here. <laughs> it's a beautiful, profound image. And so if we're willing, and in, in the biblical story, there are angels uh, going up and down, and, and, and the angel from the, from the Hebrew is a messenger. You know, th these are messengers. So the dream is a conversation. And I think our unwillingness to dream is, is a fear of our own spirituality. Mm, that's beautiful. I'm sure, again, people are like, okay, I want to dream more. And I want to I wanna be more connected. And, you know, especially during this time, you know, as we're recording this, life is stressful. Because, I mean, already modern life is stressful. But yeah, there's yeah. so much change, so much uncertainty. Yeah, again, people are trying to figure out where they stand in their life, given all this change and uncertainty in this time. And again, there's this ever-present fear of death, right, with, you know, what's going on with the pandemic and people are, you know, facing that, right, and facing that fear. I think now is the time more than ever, right, to connect to our dreams and to connect to this part of ourselves and give people tools and information. 
how do you know? There, I think there's two things we want to help people feel empowered. So certain people who are listening right now just can't even get to sleep. So maybe some tools right, around right. that. Yes. And then some people are sleeping, but they have no idea what they're dreaming, how to connect to them, or how to make sense of them. So maybe just a few tidbits, and of course we'll give all the information about your work. And you know, of course, people need yeah. to find practitioners as well to help guide them if they're really in a hard spot. But how do you approach someone from you know as far as the you know, not being able to get to sleep or having some type of sleep disorder who might be listening? How can we empower them right now? I, I think the first thing I, we touched on, and I'll repeat it, though, because it's, it's, it's basic, is at least to begin with the consideration, just to reconsider, maybe there is something inside of me that can sleep. Because a lot of people will, will say to me, I, I, you know, I've lost my ability to sleep. I don't think that ever happens. And, and, and I can trust that, that it's not something that I have to completely orchestrate, I have to be receptive to it. But I, the part of me that the, the waking self can't do sleep. So we, we want to look at factors that basically overheat us, that over-energize us, because we know that, that poor sleep is associated with uh, an insufficient drop in core body temperature. We have to do what the world does at night. Again, we sleep with the world, if we're willing, you know, and no matter where you are on the planet, when the sun goes down, temperatures gradually dip through the night, hit the lowest point before the dawn and come up. That's exactly what the body and brain do. So... Uh, People who don't sleep well just aren't very cool people, you know? Mm-hmm. Part, of, part of healing sleep is you want to be a cool person. Mm-hmm. And, and, and some of that's environmental, you know, make sure the room is cool. There's a, you don't have to be cold, but there's, there's a good temperature differential between the skin that's exposed in the room so heat gets drawn out. Don't overheat. I was just talking to a friend whose mother wakes up in the middle of the night and to try to get back to sleep, she does sit-ups, you know, because <laughs> it's going to just get you overheated. So we want, we want to cool, we want to chill, and we want to hit the brakes long before we get into bed. Which means slowing down. Now, here's a challenge to people, and this is this is a dream challenge. Most of us don't really slow down sufficiently until we get into bed. It's like not hitting the brakes on your car until it's in the garage. It's a little late because you're going to slam against the wall. So, really slowing down earlier, dimming the lights, you know, reducing energy flow. What happens when we do that? I don't know if you see this. When I was a kid, we we used to go camping and we'd sit around the campfire. We tell ghost stories. There's Something about that time of night, if you dim the lights, it naturally brings up unresolved issues, fears, concern. And I say to my patients, have as many of your bad dreams as you can before you get into bed. Mm. You know, don't just push that stuff away. So bringing that stuff up, you know, if, if, you're, if you've got a family, a partner, or a journal, there's just n- numbers of ways. It's kind of an internal spiritual shower. Once that's done, once there's a little bit of clearing, I think one of the most important overlooked sleep elixirs is laughter. (laughs) Laughter is is so incredibly profound. In fact, uh, when people laugh really hard, it triggers a mechanism in the body that looks a lot like cataplexy. I don't know if you're familiar with that and and narcolepsy. Really, uh, when we laugh, you know how somebody laughs really hard, they'll grab their stomach. Sometimes they'll fall out of the chair. We actually lose voluntary muscle tone. You know, we go, we, we go, laughter makes us go limp. There's metaphorically, there's a temporary exit of, of the, the soul from the body when we laugh. It's like it, laughter allows this openness. Like we go, whoa. <laughs> so, so practicing laughter at night, I mean, there's yoga laughter, there's a rerun of comedies, anything that, you know, 
makes you laugh. Of course, and if you're watching TV, you want to use blue blockers or if you're on a computer to screen screen out the light. So that kind of uh, bringing the energy down before we get into bed. It's also really helpful for people to know that waking up in the middle of the night is normal. Mm. It's really important. We have a lot of data on this. It's been studied historically. Waking up in the middle of the night is normal. In fact, it's normal to be up for an hour or two. Not in our world, because, you know, as soon as people start to wake up, they go, oh, damn, I got insomnia. You know, where's my ambient? <laughs> but it's actually normal. And if we if we weren't living in such a tight, wake-centric world, you know, if we weren't weren't ruled by the clock and I got to get up at this time, get to work at that time, uh, there'd be a lot more ease about that. Mm-hmm. So we have to introduce some ease. It's normal to be up at night. It doesn't disrupt. You don't have to have eight solid hours of sleep, you know? It's like thinking you have to eat all of your three meals together without stopping, you know, there can be spaces in there. So when we wake up at night, we don't want to go to battle with our wakefulness. We want want to be in it. And this is a, a simple, but really critical technique. If somebody is awake and they're peaceful, I mean, really peaceful, it's cool to stay in bed. If they're agitated, which is more common, if the mind is going, if they're, oh, how am I going to get to sleep? It's really important to get out of bed. Mm-hmm. sit away from the bed. And I recommend, as some people say, recommend knitting or TV or reading. I recommend meditation, mm-hmm. just, just being, because you're in a dreamy state. Most of those awakenings, by the way, happen when the dream is starting to come. Mm-hmm. So, and then the last part of this is, is to make, make peace with your dreams, really make friends with your dreams. Consider that the dream, again, consider, and I think this becomes clear when you do, that the dream is intelligent, even though it speaks a very different symbolic language, that it's saying something. It's it's your body, it's your unconscious, it's the collective unconscious. And it doesn't mean you have to write and capture every dream. And the other thing I'll say about that is, is um, I, I think so the most common dream interpretation books today are dream dictionaries, and I do not recommend them. You know, these are books that say if you dream about an apple, you look it up under A, and it means, you know, it's sex. Or if you dream about a, a pen, oh, that's sex too. <laughs> um, it, it's silly. You know, there, there are really very few universal symbols. Maybe water is one, a symbol of the unconscious. But but you want to you want to associate, you want to free associate. You want to kind of figure out what that says to you. And we will never fully understand any particular dream any more than if we try to analyze, uh, we had dinner tonight, you know, what happened at dinner and you can analyze it to death, right? But you understand it in the context of a whole day. When you begin to monitor your dreams, you recognize there's a river of dreams and they flow. And uh, it's not necessary to fully understand everything. It is necessary to fully respect that the dream is intelligent and it's taking us somewhere. Mm, yeah. You're looking quite dreamy now with the oh, sunlight yeah. flickering oh, yeah. in your hair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Thank you. Well, I'm in a... we, we arranged that, right? I know. It was perfectly on cue, right? You know, no, so many great tips. And I know, I, I know this will, you know, I think we gave people a lot to think about to think on their routine and I guess not to sound too like, oh, we have to make this too much of a ritual or practice, but do you feel like having like a journal in the middle, like by your bed could be helpful, like to capture kind of that kind of transition of consciousness and kind of memory of the dream? Do you find that as a useful tool for people? 
it's it's wonderful to, to to talk about your dreams, to write about your dreams. If your partner is receptive, it's a good thing to do. If they're not, then that's fine. Um, but yeah, journaling is a really good thing to do. You're reminding me to, I should say a word about melatonin. Yeah. It's probably the most misunderstood substance ever. I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, we are, as a culture, we're, we're melatonin deficient. We're way overexposed to light at night. Melatonin is, is magical in some ways. It's really powerful. And in other ways, it seems really inert. Um, so we, even small amounts of light in the evening will suppress the release of melatonin. Uh, over time, the pineal, which releases the most melatonin in the head, there's a lot of melatonin release in the gut too. The pineal calcifies. We think it's normal aging. I don't think so. I think I think we've been beating the crap out of that little organ, you know, with too much light. So I, I think supplementation is a good idea. People need to realize melatonin has a short half-life. Uh, I strongly recommend pharmaceutical grade because a lot of it's coming in from China. We don't know, but a pharmaceutical grade and uh, it's much more, melatonin is much more of a dream elixir than it is a sleep elixir. I mean, it brings us into the, the dream introduction to sleep. So, um, if you're going to take it at the beginning of the night, take a time-released formula that's going to stretch out over six, seven hours. Low dose is much better than high dose. If you're waking up in the middle of the night, you can get liposomal under-the-tongue sprays that get, you know, it avoids liver passages, goes in you know, under the tongue. You want to have at least three hours or so left to sleep. But melatonin does increase dreaming. And the other thing we've known for a long time is melatonin, if I can get a little technical, downregulates cytokine spikes in, in the lungs. And that has a lot of implications for, for COVID. Yeah. 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 No, thank you for sharing that. I'm um I'm a melatonin fan and you um validate my thoughts too. I feel like that we're in this melatonin deficient time, right? With a lot of the onslaughts to our modern life and to our pineal gland. And, you know, I even have um, one dentist I work with can see like the calcification on the pineal gland and some of the comb beam x-rays that she does of the, the skull. And so I, you know, in my practice, and so I love the liposomal forms of melatonin and there can be even this therapeutic effect for melatonin, especially um, as you mentioned, for anti-inflammatory with this cytokine piece and then yeah, yeah. Um, in the world of it's neuroprotective and even in the cancer world, it can be a great right, right. So, so it's such yeah. a powerful molecule that um, I do believe we're deficient in. And I, I do and think it's a great it, it increases dreaming. Yeah. The, the, the most common complaint the Food and Drug Administration has received about melatonin from the U.S. consumers is it makes me dream too much. <laughs> so, yeah, p- people need to understand that that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. So, Ruben, where, um, you know, you've obviously you've shared so much with us and I'm very inspired by everything I've learned today. What is exciting you most at this moment in time with where your research or the direction of your work um, at the moment? What What are you most excited about? I, I think um, there, there's a resurgence of, of interest in psychedelics. Uh, our center, you mentioned Dr. Weil, Andrew Weil, who's our, our, our director. We, we had a conference in, in the Bay Area in April 19, and it was on integrative mental health. And there was just, and Michael Pollan was there. There was just a convergence of thinking or, or recognition that the, the new psychiatry is going to be strongly informed by psychedelics. A lot of pills, to quote Jefferson Airplane, make us smaller. 
right? They kind of, they do, they shrink consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that can be helpful for some people some of the time. Uh, you know, we block out things we don't want to feel or see. But psychedelics do the opposite. They really expand consciousness. And I think they, they invite us back, sometimes very strongly, sometimes more subtly with microdosing, into recognizing that there's a much bigger world. There's, there's a wonderful little Sufi story about this boy who's born with double vision. This is a fiction piece. And he sees everything double. By the time he's eight or 10, his parents are just so frustrated. They're saying, what are we going to do with you, son? You see everything double. The boy says, father, mother, if I saw everything double, wouldn't I see four moons instead of two? <laughs> and it's it's like that. You know, we see what we see. But when when we loosen, when the boundaries of our consciousness become more permeable, the world becomes so much more alive, uh, so much more exciting, so much more scary. And, and I think that's where sleep and dreaming lives. And for me, dreaming is uh, is Mother Nature's psychedelic, if we were willing to dream. And there's some in- really interesting things happen, both in the pineal gland and the brain during REM sleep that are similar to psychedelics. So I think opening our hearts to that. And again, I think it, it, it takes, it's an act of willingness. It's an act of trust of something outside of myself, something in, in this world, in the unconscious, in other people. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I'm, ex- I'm really excited um, within the work that I do with patients um, that that's going to be more and more available, right? And as parents, we need to bring this out in the open and the results speak for themselves, you know, and I have a handful of patients who've walked that path and really it's been some of the most powerful work that they've done in their life. And so now I have a lot to learn about that world and I'm, I'm excited about that as well. So yeah. You know, we, we, in our world, we talk a lot about lifestyle and I, I think it's, it's, it's a misnomer. I mean, the word style, it really refers to fashion. It's, it's how it looks, right? You know, there's certain sweaters that speak of a lifestyle, but, but, but you know, we can talk about it in terms of nutrition, you know, there's this diet or that diet or certain exercise program, but it's, it's not enough. It's not enough for us to recommend lifestyle change. We need to recommend a change in, in fundamental posture of the psyche of the soul, then those lifestyle things will take hold. But but we have to be willing to open our hearts. Mm-hmm. Love that. And I I could talk to you, Ruben, I think for another hour and I want to respect your time and you've given um, us a lot to think about, right? And a lot of tools to feel also empowered. And I just invite people tonight, if you're listening to this, to really uh, surrender uh, to sleep and mm-hmm. to uh, really be open to connecting with the dream world. And um, I will be doing that. <laughs> uh, so Ruben, where can people learn more about your work and find out more about you? My my website primarily, which which is Dr. Nyman, D-R-N-A-I-M-A-N.com. Actually, if you Google my first name, Ruben, R-U-B-I-N, and the word sleep, You'll find me, yeah. and uh, there, there's. I, I have published lots of free documents, articles. I wrote for HuffPost for years, so there's a lot of real detailed material. Uh, I've written a couple of articles for Aeon on on dreaming. So there are dozens and dozens of articles, and they're listed on my website. And they can you can access them for free. I have a couple of books and a number of audio books. Uh, one I did with Dr. Weil, and for professionals, uh, various book chapters and and uh, medical texts. Mm. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. And we'll have all this information in the show notes. And I can't thank you enough. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. 
Thank you for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Dr. Nyman. Please check out his website and wealth of resources information all over the internet about sleep, dream deprivation, and more. And if you've been enjoying this podcast, I would be so grateful for a review on iTunes. 